Turn to Exodus 12. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that tonight feels a little bit awkward and that getting through half of Exodus 12 feels like preaching half of the crucifixion or half of the resurrection or you know, half of the greatest story ever told. And so um, I have hesitancy and concern about it. And I, I pray that you'd take that away and just let our time be fruitful. Uh, Lord, I've certainly trusted you in the preparation of uh, this study and the things that we may consider together. And um, I, as I've done that, I, I'm very aware that I have to trust you and be completely dependent upon you for, for the teaching of this and for the proclamation. And, and uh, each of us here has to trust you to have really any understanding in the Spirit. And as this chapter, Lord, is obviously clearly so important to the shaping of our mindsets as children of God covered by the blood of the Lamb, I just pray for clarity. I pray for understanding. I pray that what we taste tonight would be something that we would be quickened to move forward in life and continue to feast on and not lose sight of, um, because obviously there's so much there, um, and you breathed out wisdom. Lord, we love you, we trust you, uh, we surrender to you and ask that you would bless this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have been talking about the plagues. If you haven't been here, that's where we've been. We are on the final plague. If you have been here, you've been walking through this, climbing into it, importing your senses. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What would it be like to, to sit through this, to live through this? What would it be like to be an Egyptian who is on the... The, uh, the business end of this gun, or what would it be like to be a, an Israelite in Goshen seeing these things take place? Um, with all that, what are the plagues that we have engaged thus far in order? Don't get out of order, or that'd be bad, but what are they so far? Yeah, now I'll turn to blood, and why is that inconvenient? No water, yeah. Thirsty, yeah. You got to dig for the water. Then the magicians turn it into more blood. What's the second plague? Frogs. Wow, that was failure right there. That was like eight <laughs> answers. Uh, second plague was frogs. And um, like, what were the? What does that mean? Frogs were the plague. Where were the frogs? Everywhere, all up in your bed, your cupboards car, chariot, whatever, everywhere. What was the third? Gnats, which are horribly annoying. If there's one of them, if there's many of them on your nose and your ears and your kid's nose and ears and you practically breathe in them, that's horrible. Flies was the fourth. I'll give you all freebie on that. And why is that inconvenient? Say that again. They bite. These are biting flies. In fact, devouring flies, as it says in other places in the scripture, which is uh, not great if you're trying to preserve anything, grow anything, and not be bothered in the process. Uh, the fifth plague is what? Livestock dying, which is bad because we prefer them to live. The sixth plague is what? Boils, which is bad. Why? Painful. Unsightly. 
Sorry? Infested. I kind of want to just keep nodding my head to see how far we'll go with the boils. <laughs> Gross. Let's not. Uh, the seventh plague was what? Hail. And what kind of hail? Very destructive hail. The kind of hail that hits a huge hundred and something foot tall tree and it just explodes. The kind of hail that kills the cows and servants that are still in the field. Very, very horrible. Very, very hard. Um, utter devastation. We kind of laugh as we go through it, but really, if we're careful and we look, we're, we're seeing the Lord is showing judgment, the Lord is pouring out wrath, and the Lord is showing that there's no one like him, and he's doing it in a way that is frankly quite destructive, especially if you're an Egyptian. And so, um, it's sobering. This whole thing is very sobering. When, you, when we get into the final three plagues before the last one, we're getting into the death and destruction portions of the plague. So it's not just like a gnat at a barbecue that's annoying. We're talking about you would walk through a field and you would see desolation and crushed trees and barns that are dilapidated and dead servants. And that would be an expression of God saying, you're not heeding my warning. You're not listening to me. You're not serving me as the one true God. So after the, the hail, what did we have? Locusts. And we saw in the previous chapter that there were even things and seeds in the ground that had not yet germinated and broken through so that the locusts might actually have something to eat. God was detailed in this. God is not angry and just flying off the handle like you do in the car when your kids are in the back seat. You're trying to do that. That's not what God's doing. God is very specifically saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is who I am. This is the problem. And this is what I, aim to, this is what I intend to communicate through it. So he's not just angry doing mean things. Um, there was planning in this. I mean, he kept things in the ground so that when the locusts got there, they would have something to eat. And then last week, what was last week? Darkness. What did we learn last week about this ninth plague of darkness? It could be felt. Yeah, it was, it was such an overwhelming darkness that people just sat there for how many days? Three. Um, what else did we learn about the plague of darkness last week? What, what was it a result of? <coughs> Absolutely. Want to get any more specific with that? Yeah, a picture of their darkened and hardened hearts. It's a picture of godlessness. It's a picture of them not heeding the warning that the Lord had given them, and then they uh, find themselves sitting in the dark. That's the result. You, you can't, it's sort of like they were pursuing artificial light, and it didn't work out for them. And God says, see, now you're going to sit in the dark for three days, and you'll understand what it means not to heed my warning when you should have. How does this inform our evangelism, this plague of darkness? Where was Israel? In the light. How's that work? <laughs> Jesus. Um, you're exactly right, Jeff. God. Um, yeah, th this was something done by God. This was, a, this was not just a matter of uh, some weird um, astronomical anomaly where the sun was darkened for a few days and it was sort of dark. It wasn't a matter of um, just light a candle and we'll be fine. This was this 
overwhelming thing by God where God intended it to be overwhelming that they might sit in darkness while Israel had light. And what we see there, that informs our evangelism and that good news isn't good news if you don't know what the bad part of it is, that like light isn't bright if there's no darkness. And so as we share the gospel, people have to know when you're sharing of the gospel, um, you're a sinner and sin separates you from God and that's bad and you don't want eternal separation from God and your only hope and redemption is in Christ who is the light of the world. So it, it informs that for us. Um, what is unique about this final plague that we started considering last week? There was a few things that were unique, just even in the structure of the text, but the final plague. What was unique about its airtime comparatively? Yep. He told Moses about it first. He gave him a heads up as to what was going to happen. And there's this long, um, it was, it was, thre- it was uh, the, the plague was threatened. And then it's with the Passover too. The Passover is a fairly significant thing we're going to look at tonight. And then comes the plague after they look at the Passover and then comes the Exodus. So it's like, well, why, why wasn't the 10th one the same? Why didn't it just go uh, plague and point? And why is the Passover? And then that's, that's really what we're going to look at tonight. Um, it came with a warning. It came with lots of preparation where for the first time Moses knew, hey, I'm not going to have to go back in a few days and do another plague here. Um, this, is, this is it. God's, God's going to bring us out. And so um, there was one, one other phrase that we considered last week. Busy slaves are exhausted slaves and therefore less of a threat. What does this mean and how does it apply to us? Don't have the energy to rebel? Okay. What would you be rebelling against if you were enslaved to something? The master? Okay, so busy slaves are exhausted slaves and thereby less of a threat. How does that affect you today? Yeah? Absolutely. If, if you're so... If you're keeping a, a pace and a schedule that does not lend itself to steadfastness, there's not going to be much success in putting to death the deeds of the flesh because busy slaves are exhausted slaves and thereby less of a threat. We're supposed to be pushing back darkness. We're supposed to be working against those dark principalities and powers um, that we spoke of last week. So that's a short reminder this week. The Passover, that's what we're talking about tonight. For us, chapter 12 of Exodus will serve two very practical purposes at least, uh, practical purposes. One, it will serve as a good stopping point because after tonight, we won't jump back into this till August 24th. So it'll serve as a good stopping point, but it will also serve as the point that we'll climb back into as we consider the story of and the book of the Exodus. In a sense, uh, I feel personally that no matter how thorough we are tonight, um, it is impossible um, Tonight alone is not sufficient to plumb the depths of the, cho- of the 12th chapter of Exodus. So we will start tonight. We will begin. Then we will take an awkward, you know, three-month break and jump right back into it August 24th. It'll be like nothing happened, and we'll get right back to it. Um, in Exodus 12, uh, normally we start with verse 1. I'd like to start with verse 14 and then go back. So turn to Exodus 12:14. Exodus 12, 14 says this, this day shall be for you a memorial day. That's fitting, right? 
That's Monday, for those of you who don't keep calendar. Um, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. What I want us to see is that for those who are going to take part in the very thing that we're going to be studying tonight, it was not enough just to take part in it. You had to know what was going on. It had to make sense. And by God's design, he made it so that it would make sense. So for the people of Israel, it's not enough for you to just sort of go through the motions. This, what we're seeing here is act of faith. And we'll, we'll look at that more um, specifically in the scriptures. But it says, it's not a matter of just going through the Passover in Egypt. This is the only time that they would have Passover in Egypt. Because after the Passover, before the Passover, they could not leave Egypt. After the Passover, they could not stay in Egypt. This is a really defining, specific point of turning uh, for God's people where God is, is delivering them in a very specific way. And I want us to see that this is identity shaping, not just for the Israelites, but for us. So as we study the Passover, it tells us a lot about Christ. It tells us a lot about how we're supposed to live. And this whole thing is very identity shaping. Here, it's essentially what that's saying is what we've already looked at in Psalm 78. Tell your children, tell the coming generations of what happens here. That's my hope for y'all as we're going into the summer, that you guys will be having good conversations with your kids. Ben's talking to the kids about it tonight, about that's where they're going to end tonight on um, it's important that you talk to your mommy and daddy about your faith and about what God does, has done, and is going to do. And so I encourage y'all in that as we start. Everything we're looking at tonight is identity shaping for ethnic Israel and for us um, grafted in people. So look at 12 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first of the year for you. As I've already said, the Passover is a huge event. It's identity shaping. It's defining. From this point forward, things will not be the same to such a degree that the Hebrews will have a new calendar as a result. Imagine God showing up and saying, it's not, it, we're not almost in June. It's going to be, today's January 1st. That, that's how significant this moment is. You're getting like a new calendar. So God is metaphorically and really saying times are changing. This is a new beginning and it must not be forgotten. There was one commentator who calls it a new beginning of enormous proportions. I mean, the, the words magnanimous, all these big words that commentators use for this event you can go through, it's like a thesaurus of neat words for big um, with all the commentators because this is so pivotal, so huge, enormous, magnanimous, whatever. With each verse, this will make more sense. Look at verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, which that would be how many days from then? Yeah, 10 because it's new, new, yeah. This is the first month, this is it, this is new, day one, so 10th day would be 10 from there. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. Don't get lost. Tell all the congregation of Israel on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Keep your eye on the lamb 
from this point forward, when studying the Passover, keep your eye on the lamb. Everything revealed about the lamb reveals something about Jesus, our Passover lamb. For clarity's sake, for the sake of thoroughness, turn to 1 Corinthians 5. First Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, Let us, this is the New Testament, this is after Christ has come, had his earthly ministry, died on the cross, been raised from the dead, ascended to the Father. And here we're seeing in 1 Corinthians, many years after the Passover here that happens in Exodus 12, 5 verse, seven, 5 verse 8, sorry, um, 5 verse 7. We're just going to start in 6. How about that? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate this festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What that's saying, this is a point of complete and total change. A lot of people will use this lingo to get caught up in conversion. And like, all you got to do is get people converted and then that's it. That's all you need. Which you lose sight of a lot of, a lot of the Bible when you do that. But what this is pointing to is, is a point of, of um, complete crossover and change. Old leaven, uh, the unleavened, the new leaven. And it's because of the Passover lamb. I don't want, the reason I'm reading that verse to y'all is I don't want y'all to think I'm trying to make up nifty metaphorical parallels while I'm in Exodus. Christ is your Passover lamb. And that's very significant. So everything we're going to read in Exodus shapes your identity as one who is covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. I want y'all to see it here in the New Testament as God in his breathed out word is writing a letter to one of the most screwed up churches, the Corinthian church, trying to inform them. And he wants to make sure they know Christ is their Passover lamb. It's the same for you today. So turn back to Exodus and take that so we can have a little more clarity. The whole leaven thing, if you're, con- if you're thinking, I w- I'd like a little more info on that, um, August 24th, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to talk about leaven. So be here August 24th. I'm going to keep you all on the hook, give you a reason to come back. Exodus 12.5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. So just real quick, what day is today, if you're reading this, hearing this for the first time? The first day. And when do you go get a lamb? The 10th. And how long do you keep it? Four days. Okay. The 10th to the 14th, that's four days. Um, You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay. This lamb is to be without blemish in its first year, a male, and kept in the house for four days. Now, I said it at the beginning. I'll say it again as we start to consider this. We will not plumb the depths of Exodus 12 in an hour or 30 minutes or whatever. So if you're thinking, oh, he missed this thing. I read about this one time, and it was pretty cool, and he totally missed it. There's a lot more. I'll miss a lot right now. But there's a lot to enjoy, so let's enjoy it for the next 30 minutes 
and, uh, and hopefully have our identity shaped by it. The land without blemish. Without blemish. Um, without blemish. Go get a lamb and get one without blemish. I'm generally inclined to a line of thinking that says it is foolish to pay full price for anything. Personally. This means I generally love blemished things. Because it means they're on sale. Scratch and dent refrigerator. Scratch and dent appliances of all sorts. Used cars. Discounts due to minor blemishes. I like that. I'm a fan of that. While frugality and stewardship can be God-honoring, there is a point where that simply goes too far. And this is one of those times. If someone listening hears God say, without blemish, that's going to oh, hit my pocketbook more. And I got to get a good one. I want the lamb with like, that's missing an eye and has three legs and a rash. Give me that lamb because it'll be cheaper. That's not what God wants here. And for those who are cheap like me, you may be inclined to such a thing. But without blemish, without blemish is mentioned over 50 times throughout the scriptures, just that phrase, without blemish. And it's a theme throughout the scripture that refers to the worship of God by his people, without blemish. How can your worship be blemished? And try to think beyond just being a cheapskate. That's not, I wasn't trying to focus on that. Say that again? Full of doubt. So I might proclaim something that I'm not sure of. We said something in a song on Sunday morning where I just I stopped singing. I was like, wow, that, it was, I would lay down my life just to be by your side. Really? Would you? Or do you have blemished worship and you're just saying it because it's pretty and it rhymes? Really? I mean, we, we need to watch this closely. How else can our worship be blemished? Wholehearted or not wholehearted? Yeah. Ecclesiastes 5 says, uh, guard your steps as you draw near to the Lord. Um, And it goes on to talk about, do not offer the sacrifice of a fool, but listen closely. Sometimes we need to draw near to listen rather than run our mouths in a way that's half-hearted and disconnected. Or full of doubt. What are some other ways that our worship can be blemished? Yeah. Fitting it in as another activity on that long laundry list of activities you already have. Yeah, worship is, is it's just like the church is not a building, it's a people. Worship is not an event, it's, it's your life. I mean, Romans 12 says... Do not be conformed to the world, be transformed by, by the word, that by testing you may discern that which is pleasing, acceptable to the Lord. So it's painting this picture that your whole life is to be worship. So it's not an activity fit, that fits in with other activities. Not that any of us would be guilty of doing such a thing. Not that I would be guilty of doing it on a Wednesday, trying to get you know, everyone scheduled. How else? What are some areas where your worship, um, what are some areas of worship for you? I want us to see this. Because the unblemished thing is pretty major. A lamb without blemish. What are some areas where you, you express worship to the Lord? Service. Yes. 
Motive is, is a big deal. Anything done outside of faith is sin, is what Romans 14 says. So uh, motive is a big deal. Some, some of the people who serve the best may not have good intentions. I'm not calling you out if you're like, oh, he doesn't think I have good intentions. But like that's a, a real possibility for any of us. So service is one area. Song was one we mentioned already. Maybe proclaiming something, but not meaning it. Prayer? How can that be blemished? Yeah. 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 It's all about the supplication list and it's void of. Say that again? Yeah. Lack of prayer itself. What else? Marriage. How. Theoretically, how could it be blemished for someone else? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's an area where it's really easy to lower the standard. I was meeting with someone this week and, or not meeting with him, talking with him on the phone. And, uh, trying to encourage him to consider what God says about marriage. And, you know, it was, they just shared that, you know, my uncle so-and-so, they did this, 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 they're fine now. And it's like, man, you're lowering the bar before you even say I do. And uh, that's a very easy area to lower the bar is in marriage. Designed, according to Ephesians 5, to represent the relationship between the church and Christ. So to blemish that is pretty easy to do if you're not careful. Okay, we could go on about this pretty much all night. Um, so I'll ask, how do we keep it unblemished? Whatever it might be, how do we keep it unblemished? Accountability? That's huge. Obedient life? Yes. Yes. So let me be clear. So if I do those things... Is it unblemished? Okay. Well, what else do I got to do? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so godly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. Not a God, though, just yourself, right? Not a God, though. You don't get mad at God. You just get mad at yourself. And you, yeah. It gets really out of, it gets crazy. Um, yeah, so are there other, I mean, is that how we keep it unblemished? Like, those are all very important things. How do we keep our worship unblemished, though? Absolutely. Work heartily is for the Lord. Everything is for the glory of the Lord. Um, Someone gave me the Sunday school, Jesus, there you go. Um, that is, um, yeah, that's, that's huge. That's what we're talking about here. The Passover lamb is what makes this uh, okay for them. And we'll talk about that a little more in a second. But I want us to see that when we talk about how can our worship become blemished, there's like 
a myriad of things. I mean, we could do this. I could screw this up. I could be rescuing orphans from a burning building after helping the old lady cross the street and do the whole thing outside of faith and for my own glory because I'm hoping there's a reporter somewhere around who snapped a picture. Like, we can really mess things up, even, even serving people and, and even, I mean, one of the, I remember one pastor saying, I, I sin when I pray, especially publicly. That it's that, our sin is that pervasive. It's that easy to, to want to get the three-legged, one-eyed lamb as opposed to the one without blemish as an act of worship. And Yeah. Yep. Does anyone ever have a problem, a hard time with that? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength. Yeah. All right, well, let's wrap it up. I didn't think we'd finish early, but we got like 23 minutes. Um, yeah, this is, uh, I want us to see Christ in this. I want us to see Christ in this. I want us to see our Passover lamb. It's not a matter of doing anything to the right degree. It's a matter of our lamb. Is, his blood is, is what keeps it from being unblemished. And yes, that spurs us forward in our lives of obedience, but our lives of obedience will never count as the righteousness required by our Lord. His bar is much higher than we could ever raise ours to. And so, um, consider how our worship is meant to be informed in the Passover. Turn to Ephesians 5.27. It's interesting how this Passover imagery, um, we get to see, I started with twelve fourteen, and that this is identity shaping because we see it shaping the identity in the church in Ephesus. We see it shaping the identity in, in the Philippians, in the Ephesians, and um, the Corinthian church in us today. And so um, this is very, very identity shaping. Ephesians 5, 27, how is, how is our worship meant to be informed in the Passover. 5.27 says this, Ephesians 5.27, start in 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and, there's that word, that phrase again, without blemish without blemish. So this without blemish imagery in the Passover informs husbands, and it informs wives, and informs marriage, which informs many other things. Turn over to Philippians 2.15. Without blemish. We'll start in 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. That's hard enough. I can stop there. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. There it is again, without blemish and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So this without blemish concept now pours over into the way you do uh, everything. Your work, your parenting, being a spouse, being a friend, without grumbling, without questioning, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a very blemished culture. Turn to Hebrews 9.14. Keep turning right. Uh, Anytime I do a list of these, I just try to make it where you keep turning right. 
Hebrews 9, 14. We'll start in 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls, which a lot of the Old Testament without blemish lingo is goats and bulls and other sacrifices. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now we're getting to see even more specifically how it is that Christ, his finished work, his accomplishment informs us. I mean, look closely. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Who, did, who was he offered to? God. Don't lose sight of that. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. All of your works are dead works without Christ. So he purifies our conscience so that we may serve the Lord without dead works because his righteousness is counted as ours. And for the last one, turn to 1 Peter 1.18. To the right, a little more. One, um, we'll start in 17 and read through 19. This whole without blemish thing, I want us to see what God has done. Because what God does always informs us. It happened in Genesis, it happened in Exodus, it happened in creation, it happens in recreation, it happens in the flood, it happens in the Exodus, it happens in redemption. How God is informs us in First Peter 1, 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves, without, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God is not being subtle with the Passover imagery. He's not trying to like, I wonder if anyone's going to get this. He's like, if they don't get this, they're, they're dull and dense. And he gives us the spirit so that we're not dull and dense. He's not being subtle with the Passover imagery. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God gave his best. That's what he calls you to do. So he calls them to get a lamb without blemish. There are also correlations showing that a lamb in its first year corresponds with a man in his 30s, which is like Jesus was when he started his earthly ministry. And the most obvious part, Jesus was a dude, a male. Turn back to Exodus 12, verse 7. Then they shall, they who? Who are we talking about? They, the congregation of, of what? Israel, the Israelites shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. In which they eat what? The lamb. And so what is on the doorpost? The blood of the lamb that they are eating in the house. Now, I want us to see that this is indeed an act of faith. 
What you're seeing them do there, that putting the blood on the doorposts and on the lintels, the top and the sides, is an act of faith. Um, One commentator notes, previously they, Israel, had been segregated by the Lord without any cooperative or obedient act of their own. Like they weren't like, okay, do the dance and the hail will come down. They didn't do anything. They were segregated. They were, the Lord had separated. He had made a distinction between his people and the Egyptians, between even their livestock. So until this point, they haven't done, they haven't really been called to do anything other than stand in awe of the might of your Lord. Um, And the commentator goes on to say, but now by command of the Lord, Israel must take a stand self-declared as the people under the blood of the Lamb. This is a big point here. I want you to see this as an act of faith. Turn to Hebrews eleven twenty-eight. Again, we're going to be, we're turning a lot because this is identity shaping. This is a pervasive thing throughout our Bibles. Hebrews eleven twenty-eight. By faith, he, who's he? Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So the sprinkling of the blood, then putting it on the lintels and the doorpost, is an act of faith. I want you all to see this as an act of faith for this reason. At this point, is Israel any closer to redemption as far as they can tell? It doesn't, did, it, did it look like, okay, those nine plagues are starting to take effect? Would you say that for Israel... Freedom seems more fleeting or less fleeting? I would say it seems more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're having to work harder. This whole... Has anyone ever tried to catch a mouse? That's what... I, it's the only thing I could think of. It's on the fly. I tried to catch a mouse one time, and all I had was a styrofoam cooler. And so I'm trying to catch the mouse, and I can't do it. And I try to put this thing down, and I can't catch it. And, uh, and eventually, I think I get it, and I go down real hard, and I crush the cooler, and it explodes. I'm like, sweet, that's awesome. Now I don't even have my styrofoam cooler. And so I can't catch the mouse. The point is, after about 10 minutes of trying to catch the mouse, I felt that the mouse was more elusive than in the first minute. It's like, man, this is a crafty little mouse. He is, he's getting away from all of my work, and I can't catch him. What I'm getting at is this. Nine plagues, serious devastation, and they're not free yet. They're having to trust what God is telling them. They'll sense that they are closer to being free if they're trusting God, and you can only do that in faith. This is an act of faith, and I want us to see it. Freedom would likely seem... Uh, very, very elusive at this point if they're not trusting God. Um, a guy named Matyer, very smart guy, said, and this was the point to which Israel came in Exodus 12. He's saying Exodus 12 for Israel, this was a big chapter for this reason. In Exodus 12, this was the point they came to, knowing unmistakably how great was the power of the enemy. They know how great the power of their enemy is. Equally aware of their own weakness and helplessness, they have not been able to free themselves And in fact, all they can do is submit to the harder labor that has been placed upon them. Yet ready to pit all on bare obedience 
to the command and promise of God. God said, get a lamb, so we will. What they're doing here is an act of faith. So what we will read from this point forth is not just motions. They're not just going through the motions of something. This is faith. This is what faith looks like. This is human faithfulness as a direct result of God's faithfulness to his purposes, his plans, and his word. Look at Exodus 12, verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. It's pretty specific. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. This Passover lamb. God is revealing to us that his plan for redemption has a very unique balance to it. Hang with me here. This is harder. God is revealing to us that his plan for redemption, for us and with Christ, our Passover lamb, for the Egyptians with their Passover lamb as they're feasting in haste in Egypt, ready to leave, his plan for redemption has a very unique balance to it. First, it's specific. His plan is specific. It should give us warning to be careful about going freestyle with our faith. I prefer my steak rare. Would that matter at this little dinner? I prefer my steak. If I go to a nice steakhouse, it's medium rare. If I go to a cheap steakhouse, you have to say rare, then it'll actually be medium rare. Um, so here, uh, would that matter? No, it wouldn't matter at all. Um, preferences give way to faithfulness. I mean, Bitter herbs. I mean, can't you just imagine a church full of whiners? Roast it completely. Don't boil it. Cook it all the way through. Roasted with bitter herbs. I don't like bitter herbs. I don't like the roasted. I like the way it tastes when you boil it. Seriously, there are a lot of things you could kind of kick back on here. God's being specific for a reason, and your preferences should always be secondary or maybe even obsolete, because your preferences might just be flat-out unfaithful. I don't like lamb. I'm not eating it. Well, that's not faithful. You have to do what the Lord said. So the preference either is secondary, or it gives complete way. Uh, it always gives complete way, whether it be secondary or obsolete, in regards to faith. What are some ways that people can go freestyle in their faith? When it's convenient. Convenience. Oh, Yes. What are some other ways people can go freestyle in their faith? <laughs> Which you can't argue with. It's horrible. There's one interpretation of Scripture. Yeah. I don't need to be in that stuffy place with the weird pews and the plaid seats. That's not necessary. Everybody doesn't need elders. Uh-oh. Now we're getting to church structure, leadership. Uh-oh. People will fight over that kind of stuff. I don't care what the Bible says. This is how my granddaddy did it. That's normal. That's not, that's not abnormal. In fact, it's not abnormal to me to read many things in Scripture and say, here you go, and, and no, I don't like that. I'll do it this way. Um, church structure is a very, very, very delicate one. Even as, even as I say elder leadership, some of you might be like, I'm not even sure about it. I'm a member. 
but that might be hard for me even now. I don't know. What else? Ah, yes, yes. This is a good book, but it's just one out of many, many holy, informative books. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Or I believe in Jesus is a good man. Freestyle. God would, God would want me to be happy. That sounds hard, which equals unhappy, which I can't imagine God. Yes. Yep. I didn't say that. I don't disagree with it. I think the Bible says it. Oh, man, that was my idol. When I started digging into the Word and seeing things, I realized that I'd had an idol for many years of a God that i just kind of formed who was a lot nicer in my mind, um, much, more, um, much more good in my mind. But then you look at the realities of who he is, and you're like, wow, I was really limiting who God is. Yeah, my God would never do that. That's, that's an idol for many. When it says he did it, clearly, in the Word and does it, and we'll do it again. What else? Huh? I'm going to say, I'm a good person. I don't do drugs and alcohol, so I'm okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll just, my faith will be a comparison to uh, uh, alcoholics and drug addicts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Adding to and taking away from the commands of God. We could spend the rest of the night talking about what that looks like. So freestyle and faith isn't hard to come by. Um, it's not hard for us to fall into, and it's not far, hard for us to observe uh, in anyone, really. Um, while faith can have many expressions, I want to I make sure that, that this is where I was talking about the balance being unique. When we use lingo like, this is the only way, there's no other way to do this, sometimes we can use that in the wrong areas. And um, faith can have many expressions, but the expression itself does not change faith. Let me say that again. While faith can have many expressions, like while you might hear a sermon on a Sunday and go walk in it in a certain way while someone else is walking in it in a totally different way, you don't fight with each other seeing who's more faithful like they did in Romans 14. The Jews were looking at the Gentiles saying, be more like us. The Gentiles were looking at the Jews saying, be more like us. Paul's like, hey, how about you all be more like Jesus? That was the point. So faith, while it can have many expressions, the expression itself does not change faith. So if you find, if you go too far in the pursuit of uniqueness, if you go too far in the pursuit of artsiness, if you go too far in the pursuit of my freedom of expression and my faithfulness, you can find yourself dismissing actual aspects of faith that were never meant to be negotiable. What are some aspects of faith that people sometimes talk about as negotiable? We already talked about some of them. Maybe the way church leadership goes. Church attendance. Yeah, they're most of the time. If it's just a place. What are some other negotiable things, aspects? Aspects of faith that are easily dismissed because we consider them negotiable. Marriage covenant. Yeah, long as it's working out, we'll stick with it. 
It's not a negotiable. You don't use if. Huh? Tithing, giving. Negotiable. Singing can be negotiable. Preaching. <laughs> I don't care. Just get up there for a minute. I don't care what you do, but you got 15, 20 minutes. Forgiveness, negotiable. Depends on what they did, right? How you dress. How you dress. Lack of modesty. Local church could be negotiable for many. It is negotiable for many. You live in a culture where local church is negotiable for many professing Christians. Corporate worship, worship giving, singing, not a reader, all these things can be negotiable. It also says that this is to be completely consumed. Don't leave any of it over until morning. Anything that remains until morning shall be burned. Uh, completely consumed. What do you all think that means? Everything. Everything. How does that, what, what does that tell you about Jesus? Don't dabble. We'll just keep it simple. Don't dabble in faith. Don't dabble in the things of Christ. Uh, in short, um, faith is all-consuming because Christ is meant to be completely considered and obeyed. Don't be mostly given to the flesh, mostly given to the, this world, while given in small part to Christ. That would be the equivalent of thinking a few bites of the Passover lamb cooked to your preference would suffice for obedience. Don't be dabbling in your faith. Fully consumed. Look at verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Feast in haste, Egypt is not your home. How does that affect you today? Feast in haste, blank. This world's not our home. Are your loins girded? Are your sandals fastened, staff in hand? That's how we live. We'll talk more about that on August 24th, evidently. Um, uh, the Passover is a feast for pilgrims, is what this is saying here. Uh, I want us to, I'm going to read through the rest of these verses, because I want us to take in this story. It's largely narrative. I'm going to close the night by reading through this, making brief points as we conclude, because I want you all to take in this story. You need to see the 10th plague in light of the Passover and how they are corresponding. In fact, it is the Passover itself. Verse 11, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in hand, and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, when I see the blood, that's a huge, huge statement. I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the, day, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Would you, like, would you opt out at this point? Like, okay, what? First day I got to eat all the leaven out of the house? Really? Because he starts to get real specific. And at some point you might be like, that just sounds annoying, God. Are you annoyed by God's specificity and your faithfulness? 
On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. Those are ordained by God, by the way. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. That's war words. Uh, Brought your host out. That sounds like a military coup. Uh, It's interesting given the dynamics. We'll talk about that August 24th. Therefore, you shall observe this day through your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the doorpost with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house, of his house, until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised you, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the Lord of Israel went and did so. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians and all. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you've said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. These are very sobering verses. Um, I just, when I see the blood Obedience is really important. It's the sign of belief in a child of God. It's how one sees the fruit of the Spirit at work. But God doesn't say, when I see you're doing what I told you to do, then I will pass over you. Instead, he says, when I see the blood, then I'll pass over you. Is that what you are depending on when God looks at your life? Would you point at your dinner table, complete with bitter herbs, and say, I even got the bitter ones. Or is your hope in the blood of the lamb? Because he tells them to do something, but then he says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And if your hope is truly in the blood of the lamb, consider what that would look like on a seemingly insignificant Thursday afternoon at work. What we're seeing here is a picture of propitiation. We're all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And Christ is our our, our propitiation, which means wrath absorber. And all that 
imagery bleeds over from Exodus and we see it in Romans and we see it in 1 Thessalonians and we see it in all the letters of the churches. But this is supposed to shape your identity. So I would encourage y'all, since you know that we're going to be climbing right back into Exodus 12 in August, I would encourage y'all to spend some time reading through Exodus as a family. Because God means to shape your family identity with these verses in the same way he shaped the Israelites as they are preparing to leave Exodus. It will prepare you and it will prepare your children to leave this world when the Lord returns. So it's very, very significant. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for our time. We pray that you would be with us as we go our way. And we pray that we would walk in faithfulness and be completely dependent upon the blood of the Lamb. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.